My calling is uniquely one as a preacher. Pa- pastoral ministry is un- uniquely a calling to preach, to preach the Word. It's what's interesting about my, the job to which I've been called, the, the ministry that's been set in front of me as a pastor, is it's completely re- reliant on God's works. We're going to talk about that this morning, but it's like, it's interesting to have, to have a, a, a task ahead of you that you can't accomplish, right? But that's what, that functionally is what pastoral work is. I pray that God continues to be at work here as I know, and I trust He will through the, the ministry of the elders in, in preaching the Word and in, in moving in the ways that, that He does here at Gospel Life Church through that Word preached. But because it, it's reliant on Him, we start with prayer. Let's ask for help. God, we come before You now asking that You would help us to read the text and to avoid any kind of self-delusion or desire for self-defense. Or we know our posture is one that gets defensive. When we get into arguments, when we get into conflict, we pivot pretty quickly to self-defense. We pivot pretty quickly to a false repentance. One that that cycles through this remorse and resolution of I didn't mean to do that. I'm not really that bad. I'm going to try harder. And um, in that cycle, we just, we fail. We fail, uh, God, God, because we fail to see our need for you. And so I, I pray this morning, would you just melt away the self-defenses and would you help us to see our great need for you in, in, in Jesus? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so <clears throat> there's this, okay. Before we get into the text, because there's, there's a lot in this text that we need to cover. But before we do that, it's like useful in preaching at times to spend some time talking about the primary issue or problem that a particular text brings into view. Right? Because for us to really understand this and see this, we need to see the central issue involved. Right? Okay, so a couple of different ways to get at that this morning. There's this idiomatic phrase we have in the English language. Um, from which I borrow almost weekly as a preacher, but it finds its origin actually in the courtroom. In the English language, it finds its origin in the courtroom. It's a courtroom idiom. Yes, it has religious roots for sure, but it's a courtroom idiom. Throw yourself on the mercies of the court. Right? So if you're here this morning and you don't have any background in the Bible, you don't have any background in Christian culture, you would hear the phrase, just throw yourself on the mercies of the court in any movie that's a courtroom drama or book or play, right? It's fairly common idiom. And, and it's a saying that actually dates back to the Westminster system of government, which influenced, you know, U.S. government in so many ways, uh, in which a guilty plaintiff would essentially do three things. So guilty plaintiff, first of all, comes before the authority of, of the court and prostrates himself, right? I mean, he like, he, um, he bows himself low, he humbles himself before the authority. He recognizes the authority of the court, and he looks to make a direct appeal to the judge, to the one who's in authority. Okay, number one. Number two, then, he acknowledges his guilt. He acknowledges his wrongdoing. And with remorse, he confesses that he's both guilty and deserving of the punishment that the court gives, right? So there's a sense, there's no, there's no pretense. It's like, I deserve punishment. And then number three, okay, asking for mercy from the court is one who's not stubbornly fighting their guilt, not trying to make themselves out to look better than they actually are, but rather confessing it. 
And in those situations, right, according to the Westminster system, it wasn't uncommon for sentences to be greatly reduced. We see something similar in the U.S. judiciary system often as well, that when somebody um, is deemed to be sincere in acknowledging their guilt with remorse and throwing themselves on the mercy of the court in this way, there's a reduced sentence um, oftentimes. At the same time, it was also pretty rare in history. It would happen, but it was also pretty rare, and it continues to be actually, believe it or not, fairly rare today. Why? Because, as the courts would come to find in case after case, coming before the authority of another, acknowledging the authority of another, admitting guilt, acknowledging one's guilt, being willing to submit yourself to authority related to one's guilt, confessing it before others, all that is just, it's very, very rare. It's really hard for human nature <clears throat> to come to the point of admitting how bad we are. We really don't like that. And, and it's actually, it's a constant struggle. None of us want to acknowledge sin. And it's what makes the gospel so offensive to the world. It's also what ma- continues, I think, to make the gospel offensive even for Christians. You know, it's, it's, it's the point at which we can maybe start to tire of hearing the gospel in the sense that, well, we just don't like to, to focus on acknowledging an admission of guilt. H- having said that, it's true. It's true about human nature. This is why, you know, so I'm going on sabbatical. Um, won't be here next week, but next week my, my sabbatical begins. And, and wherever we go as a deck family, we're looking for maybe a place to land for a period of time. But wherever we go, I w- I'm going to be bringing my copy of this book, uh, The Complete Stories of Flannery O'Connor. And one of the reasons I enjoy, I've read a lot of O'Connor, but one of the reasons I enjoy her short stories uh, from the early to mid-1900s. One of the reasons I enjoy her is because she understands this reality that we're talking about, right? So she paints these portraits of these ugly and grotesque characters. I've talked about this before in her short stories. I wish I had time to quote some of the interviews she's given related to this, but for her, it couldn't be more obvious that our deepest need is a rescue from ourselves, you know? And she's like 100 years ahead of her time as it relates to this. Like, she really understood this long before it started to be a, a contemporary cultural issue, right? So in her stories, she's, she's sharing these things, um, these grotesque characters, and that is because she understands human nature. And every now and again, that kind of Flannery O'Connor understanding of human nature even shows up in contemporary storytelling. There's, a, there's this forthcoming Jeff Bridges movie. Um, looks like it's going to have a lot to say about human nature, but in the trailer, someone says this. I wouldn't typically quote a trailer, but it's this good. It says, um, someone says, there's a villain in every story. No one ever sees themselves as playing that role. There's a villain in every story. No one ever sees themselves as playing that role. How true is that? Like, this is why Flannery's description of her main characters tend to be so grotesque. Why? Because she knew, even when she was writing this when she did, she knew that when you read a story, when you watch a movie, like, what's your impulse? You almost always identify, not with the villain, but with the hero. Like, who do we most naturally see ourselves as in the stories we read? We see the hero, but there's a villain in every story. No one ever sees themselves as playing that role. Yet as we look at the scriptures, as we look at what we've read about in Ephesians, what do we see? We come to find this description of ourselves as those who had set themselves up as God's enemies, by nature children of wrath, and the only reason... The only reason that we now have had our story changed as Christians has nothing to do with like us rescuing ourselves, us becoming the hero of our own story. 
But actually, it's as we see in Flannery's stories, and it's exactly what she said before, it's because our primary, the only way the grotesqueness comes undone is if our primary need has been met by being reconciled with a holy God, a perfect God who desires to make us new. But we have, man, we have a really hard time viewing ourselves this way. We'd rather be the hero. It's a real problem. And let me say this, like, this is why, this is why it's rare to throw yourself on the mercy of the court, to make an appeal to the authority, right? Throw yourself on the mercy of the court. But this is also why, this is why centrally, I think, the church of God doesn't pray. Why does the church of God oftentimes get characterized with prayerlessness? Why, why are there patterns of prayerlessness in believers and in corporate bodies in the church? Because if we really understand what the gospel is, like, we will be a people of prayer, you know? Um, our response would be prayer, and Paul shows us that here. So he's going to close out this section that's all about this huge gospel of grace that we've been preaching through, Ephesians chapters 1 through 3, with four parts of his prayer for these believers with which he's writing. And with these four parts of prayer, he's going to show us essentially the foundation for prayer in the life of a believer. So four, four parts of his prayer. He's going to tell us the posture of prayer, the person to whom we pray, the purpose of his prayer for these Gentile believers, and the power by which it's possible. Okay, so the posture, the person, the purpose, and the power. Let's start with Paul's posture, which is, I think, seen in multiple ways just in the first few words. Let's read, starting in verse 14. For this reason... I bow my knees. For this reason, I bow my knees. Not every prayer in the Scriptures is described from a posture of kneeling. All right? In fact, when you study the Scriptures, and when you study like ancient Jewish culture, um, early Christian culture, the default mode of prayer appears to be standing in, in the Scriptures and in early church tradition. The question then is, why does Paul specifically mention his bowed knees here? Why doesn't he, as he does in other places when he talks about prayer, just simply mention that he's praying for them and tell them what the nature of the prayer is? Why does he, he say his knees are bowed? He, he takes um, some time to discuss this part of his posture. Well, um, kneeling throughout the scriptures signifies our reverence for God, certainly. Our submission before him. Our humility before God. As one commentator notes, Listen to this. Kneeling signifies the worshiper who felt his need so keenly that he could not stand upright before the Lord. I like that language. He felt his need so keenly. He was so aware of his need that he couldn't stand upright. It's not unlike the, the, the vision of Daniel of the Son of Man in which he receives this vision of the Son of Man and in knowing his you know, inadequacy in light of the one to whom he's seen, Daniel just crumples to the ground. You know, and, and actually, we see that kind of a posture throughout the Scripture to describe the ultimate posture before the Lord in the end. Every knee shall bow. Every tongue confess. It's not a statement of universalism in which everyone is saved, but rather the reality that the God of the Bible is the universal King to whom everyone must bow. Right? Like, in other words, it's a posture of necessity. There's nowhere else to go. So when the disciples tell Jesus... Uh, where else do we go? Who else has the words of eternal life? You're the ones with the words of eternal life. That's the idea. It's, a, it's essential. And that's the context here, as we talked about last week. There's another way, other than Paul talking about his physical posture, that he describes this posture of the heart. Because look at how he begins this, this prayer. For this reason, right? So he's building 
for this reason. So he's building on the argument that he's been making all the way up to this point. And this prayer is a fitting conclusion to these three chapters because the gospel that Paul describes should move us to the kind of prayer that he's talking about here. Right? So, so reading about, so let's think about Paul's argument in Ephesians up to this point. Reading about who we once were apart from Christ, dead in our trespasses and sins, without God, without hope in the world, so who we once were, who we are now in Christ while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Jesus. Jesus doing for us. Effectively, Paul continues to come back to Jesus doing for us what we could not do for ourselves, what we had failed to do for ourselves, what we will always fail to do for ourselves. And reading about that big gospel of what Christ has done for us in chapters 1 through 3 should have the effect of driving us to our knees before the Lord. It should have that effect. Like if we really believe it, and this is why we're called to gospel belief throughout our life, it should knock down all pride. It destroys the dividing wall of hostility that we've been talking about for the last two weeks that says, I'm so much better than you. Because we're not. If we think we are, we're wrong. Fundamentally wrong about gospel things. All of us have to bow our knees before God because there's nowhere else to go. It's an essential posture. Like this is where Christians, okay, just as, I I think this is a direct application. So I'm going to spend time here. But this is where Christians get prayer all wrong, I think. And it's actually where we get discipleship all wrong too. Discipleship, this um, idea of Christian growth and Christians helping one another grow in the life of the church. How do Christians grow? This is where we get this wrong. This is often how we view the spiritual disciplines. It's how we we view spiritual fruit. We see them as things that we do in order to demonstrate our maturity. Things that we check off a list in order to demonstrate how how we're growing and making progress. Right? Um, How mature we perceive ourselves as being. How far up the discipleship spectrum of stairs and chairs we're moving. And I'm going to say a word about that in a minute. But it actually, it, it works in the opposite way. It's not, you know... Christian maturity isn't brought about by saying, so I pray a lot and therefore I'm mature. Works the opposite way around. In other words, yes, there's a sense in which our prayer life is absolutely linked with our spiritual maturity, but let me tell you why. It's not because you, by praying, made yourself spiritually mature. It's actually the more you realize that without God there is no spiritual maturity, that without God's work in you through his gospel, you can actually have no spiritual life at all. So that if you desire to make progress in Christian life and growth, you have no choice but to come before God, as Calvin says, with empty hands and anticipate that He's the one who will fill them. Because this is His work that only He can do. The more you really understand and actually believe it, not just giving it some kind of like intellectual assent, like, yeah, yeah, that's true, I need God, but actually feeling it, being keenly aware of it, the more you'll come to Him in prayer. See how it's linked with our spiritual maturity? The more you get that, the more mature you become. Because the more you realize the only one that you can come to again and again, the more you'll come to him in prayer, the more your, your prayers in that way will, will reflect his heart. Meanwhile, the more you see your prayer and the other spiritual disciplines as something you do to make yourself more mature, like I do X, and that makes me more mature, and I get steadily better at doing these things, and that makes me more mature. The more you do that, I promise you, the more you start looking at others with the idea that they're not as good as you. They're not doing as well as you. The more you'll build, this, build up this dividing wall of hostility that Paul's been talking about. Jesus actually told a parable. I was thinking like, what's a good illustration 
related to prayer and the spiritual disciplines that would help shine a light on what the Apostle Paul is talking about here. And I came up with some good ones, let me tell you, but um, Jesus came up with one too. His is better. So we're going to go with Jesus's. Luke 18, starting in verse 9, Jesus tells this parable. He tells this story. Okay. In verse 9 it says this. Listen to, so Luke, Luke describes for us who Jesus's audience is and why he's telling the parable before he even says it. So he also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Do you hear this? Like, he told this parable to some who trusted in themselves, trusted in the things that they were doing, that they were righteous, thought that their spiritual maturity was a direct result of all the things they were doing, and what did it say their attitude was toward others? That trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. This is the dividing wall of hostility, right? Okay? In real-time action. So starting it, we, we start to see it actually, it's not just some theological concepts. This is actually how things work. Okay, so what happens in the story? Well, two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. Vashik was so helpful a few weeks ago in helping us understand the context of who a tax collector was. I refer you back to that, but, you know, um, the lowest of the low. Someone who is a traitor to his own people, exploiting his own people for his own personal gain, okay, so you have the tax collector, the lowest of the low in first century Jewish audience, and a Pharisee, a religious leader, to go up to the temple to pray. The Pharisee, verse 11, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. So how does he view his spiritual maturity? Uh, look, look at what I do. This makes me more mature. Right? So I check off my list of fruits. I do all these things. I fast twice a week. I'm sure he doesn't do it as well as I do. He's viewing someone else with contempt on the basis of his own works. Right? So then what happens? Okay. Um, But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, Jesus said, This man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. So do you see this? Like, do you see this dividing wall of hostility in action? The way in which one man is using his self-perceived spiritual disciplines as a way of saying, look how good I'm doing. Which will always and inevitably, I promise you, lead to us saying, I'm better than that guy. Meanwhile, do you see what happens with the gospel leveling of the playing field in the tax collector who really understands the gospel, who really understands his need. Like, it's not that the tax collector has nothing true to say to the Pharisee about the gospel. It's that he doesn't view the, the Pharisee with contempt because he knows his own neediness is the same. Right? He's not positioning himself above anyone. He's too busy acknowledging the reality of his own sin. One of these men prays because they think it makes them look so good. They pray because, look how spiritually mature I am. They pray because it's the means of their growth. The other man prays out of necessity and reliance and a deep, their, their deep felt need of the living God. You see the difference? Right? And so if, if what Paul says in chapters 1 through 3 about the gospel is true, we should all be on our knees. We should all be on our knees. So, that's Paul's posture in prayer. Kneeling before the Father, recognizing our deep and central need. But that brings us secondly to the person to whom he addresses his prayer. Verse, verse 14, beginning of 15. For this reason, 
I bow my knees before the Father, for the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. Okay, so um, the idea is, like we just saw, the idea is you can't do it. You can't do it. And if there's one thing that Paul is really going to great efforts to express repeatedly, it's that you can't do it. All right, so then the question is, what or who do we turn to since I can't do it? Like, it's not enough just to recognize some, something lacking within you, all right? Um, so go find some other thing that will complete you. Because we do that all the time with all sorts of things. We, we recognize, I think, that we're lacking. We recognize that there's something in us that's not whole. And so we, we go and we seek out other things to complete us or to, to find our primary identity in. They can be in anything from, like, academics and study to sports to the business uh, that, that, you know, our business, our, 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 our occupation. It can be relationships with one another, but we make that the thing. This is the thing. This is the central primary thing that's going to complete me. And it never, it, it never goes well. You know, we will often recognize our inability to have spiritual life on our own to some degree because I think, again, I think it's, it's obvious. You know, it's something that if you spend any amount of time examining yourself, we, we come to see that it's true. But then we, what we end up doing is we turn... We, we feel like we're lacking, but then we turn to something or some other thing other than God to fix it. We turn to something or someone on this earth rather than the one who exercises all power and authority over the earth. We worship and serve the creature rather than the creators. And, and, and I think that's what Paul's getting at here because the ancient world, the way that the ancient world understood a name. Right? What's, what's a name? Well, it's not just a way to tell one person apart from another. It's useful in that way. But it's not just a way for one person to be told, uh, to tell one person apart from another. But actually, in the ancient world, it, w- it was a way to say something deep and meaningful about that person. So when you read the Old Testament, there's a reason why you see, you know, they're given this name, and along with that name, there's this identity. There's this, like, deep meaning attached to it. Right? Um, so the fact that, that God, you know, he, it was about who they are. It's, it's to ascribe some kind of identity. So the fact that God gives creatures a name, it's not just a way for them to tell each other apart, you know. It's actually a way to show that he brought them into existence, that he made them who they are, that he exercises all power and dominion and authority over them. And actually all, all true identity is found in God. He's the author of it. And as such, he's the only one to whom we can turn. But here's the issue that the scriptures make plain to us. The central problem described in the Bible is that we thought we knew better than that God, right? So what did we do? Do, you mean, do, we, do we remember from Genesis chapter 3, what feels like years ago? Because it was. Um, <laughs> do we remember this quest for wisdom that Adam and Eve go on? We, in, in Genesis 3, we sought wisdom on our own. We wanted a path to wisdom that end-arounded end God, that didn't involve Him, that we could actually manufacture ourselves. And that quest for wisdom, apart from God, has brought us to absolute ruin. It's brought us to open rebellion against Him. It's made us God's enemies. Bypassing the only one who had authority over everything, true authority, and could offer peace and life, and true wisdom, and attempting to get all these things on our own and from other things. But actually getting the opposite. So we don't, you know... We don't just bow the knee at something. 
It's not just a matter of recognizing our inadequacy. I think we'll see why everyone to a degree senses that even more in the text. To the degree that we just bow the knee at anything to complete us, the Christian's response needs to be constantly repenting and believing the gospel. And someone who comes in there and not a believer in Jesus, their response needs to be repenting and believing the gospel because there is one in whom you can find identity that's far more secure and that doesn't lead to ruin but actually leads to life. So instead, what do we do? We bow the knee. We give ultimate allegiance to the person with the ultimate authority over everything. The God of the Scriptures, okay? So why, okay, why does Paul in this case bow his knees before the Father in prayer? What's the purpose? You've seen the posture of the person and now the purpose. Verses 16 through 19 is really the section of purpose. Let's just start with 16. That according to the riches of His glory, He may grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being. Just to take a step back, we talked about this, the riches, God's riches, like how He views riches. What are God's riches? We talked about this a little bit on Good Friday. This was our Good Friday text. I'm not sure if you remember. In him we have redemption. Chapter 1, verse 7. In him we have redemption through his blood. The forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us. Right? So like, for Paul, the riches of God, the riches of his glory, the riches of his grace are inextricably bound up with Jesus. They're bound up at the cross because this is where his riches are extended to us. This is where they're made available. This is one of Paul's shorthands for the good news of Jesus. Like, the riches that he offers his people. So it's worth um, noting this because like, it's according to this gospel that Paul prays. And what does he pray for? He prays according to this gospel that they'd be strengthened with power in their inner being. Now this is interesting because I think here is where we start to see the ways in which commonly speaking we can feel like deficient. Even if we don't, you know, like, we're not be a Christian. But humanly speaking, it's very easy for humanity to feel deficient. Like, so many people desire what Paul is talking about here. Paul's prayer isn't, in other words, that like, our outward selves would experience strength. We know how to train our bodies physically to produce some level of strength. But here's what we also know. We know that our bodies eventually fall apart. We know that they're frail. We know that over time, that kind of strength will wane. You know, and in the face of global pandemic, what do we do? We fear death. You know, we fear um, destruction to our outward selves. And so what do we really desire? We desire to be strengthened in our inner being. Because through seasons like that, we experience this emotional turmoil that plagues us regularly. That can lead to anxiety and depression and darkness and difficulty. And so the question that people have in this life is, oftentimes, how can I find true peace even in the midst of circumstances like this? How does one strengthen their inner life? And Paul answers this question... Because his purpose in praying is that their spiritual life would be strengthened. And he tells us how it happens. Through his spirit. The means of being strengthened in your inner life is through the spirit of God. The spiritual life offered in the gospel of Jesus is made available only by the work of God's spirit. He's the one who makes it possible for us to believe. And so, like, it's interesting, right? Like, what is, what is the work of the spirit? What does he do? Well, he points us to Christ and to the cross He's the one who works through us that 
um, in bringing this gospel to bear, bringing gospel remembrance to our ears, working through the very word of God that we might understand and believe. The Spirit does this. So, so the Father, you see this very Trinitarian structure to the text. The Father desires reconciliation, sends the Son who willingly takes the punishment that we deserve, and now, by the work of the Spirit, we might actually hear and believe. See, like, if, if you want to know, if you want to seek evidences of the Holy Spirit in the life of the church of God, rather than primarily looking at miraculous gifts, we should primarily seek the normative work of the Spirit, which actually I think we tend to bypass because we don't see it as miraculous. We don't see that actually the normative work of the Spirit is extremely miraculous. It's miraculous that we could come to believe and understand the grace of God in in Jesus. And so if you want to see evidence of the Spirit's power at work, the primary place we look is the cross of Christ. Is the cross being put up? Are people coming to to believe and understand and apply this good news of Jesus? Because as the Apostle Paul says elsewhere, we don't say that Jesus is Lord other other than through the power of the Spirit. He's the one who prompts this. That we can't understand spiritual things without the Spirit's work to show it and to reveal it to us. So, um, continuing on with Paul's purpose in praying then, what exactly does the Spirit's work look like in this way? What is the Spirit of God active in doing in the life of the believer? Starting in verse 17. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. That you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints, what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. So, what does it look like to be strengthened in your inner being by God's Spirit? What is it precisely the Spirit of God does in us? Paul says, so for believers, Paul says, so that, in other words, the direct result of the Spirit's activity is that, Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. What does that mean? Well, the the verb here for dwell, pretty forceful. Pretty forceful. It's not talking about something temporary, in other words. It's not something that's like fleeting, that comes one moment and is gone the next. This indwelling that Paul describes is, it's got a, a really strong sense of permanency. Anytime the form of this verb is used, it's got this form of permanency. Um, this, this understanding of permanency, that, that Christ might permanently reside in your hearts through faith. That's what's being offered to you. To give you an idea of how forceful that permanency is, Paul says the exact same thing. Um, use the exact same form of this verb in Colossians 1 when he's describing Jesus. And here's what he says about Jesus. He says, for in him, in Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Right? The same fullness of God that he prays for us to have that we may be filled with the fullness of God. He's saying that in Christ, in Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Same form of the word dwell that we see here. So Paul isn't communicating that the fullness of God, you know, for a time dwelled in Jesus, for a season dwelled in Jesus, but rather that God eternally dwells, that Jesus is God. He's the second person of the Trinity. So, so his prayer here, that Christ might dwell in our hearts, has the same force moving forward. Permanent dwelling. So he's saying if you want to have this gospel life in your inner being, you must have Christ dwelling there. In him is all the fullness of God. So if you want to experience all the fullness of God, it it begins and ends with Jesus. 
In other words, if Christ resides within us, then here's what that means. It means that Jesus will be, and is this true of us? Jesus will be at the very center of our lives and will exercise his rule over all that we say and do. Can we say that about Christ? Because this is what it means to have him residing in us by faith. And the way, you know, the way he comes to dwell in our hearts is through faith. Faith that's brought about, it's generated by the Spirit of God, but it's through faith. And this is more than just salvation. You know, this is more than just like our first crying out to God in which we believe. Like, remember, Paul's talking to believers. He's praying that believers would have Christ dwell in their hearts by faith. So he is saying, yes, foundationally, his prayer is for them to hear the gospel, believe, have Christ permanently dwelling within them as that which is their very center and authority. But he's also communicating here that the more they would come to trust in him, the more they would come to believe in the good news of Christ, the more they would come to remember who they once were, but who they are now in light of, of Christ, the more they would then apply that belief and the more central and authoritative he would continue to become in the life of the believer. To give you an idea of what I mean, so it's, it's ongoing. And to give you an idea, I, I alluded to this earlier, I said I was coming back to it, and I've talked about it before, not too long ago, but I think the big problem with how we tend to think through discipleship in the church is that we make these pathways of discipleship. And I've talked about it before, I've actually written a three-part series on our Gospel Life Church blog if you want to go in deep and see what I've said about it. A little bit. Um, we have these pathways of discipleship, and usually what happens is if you ever come across a discipleship pathway, typically in a in um, a Christian book or something, usually it's pictured with various. You know, I've said it before, but like chairs or stairs or bases. All right, upon which we have to make progress. So we have to move up a chair. We have to move up the stairs. We have to go from first base to second base to third base, and then eventually home plate. And we tend to evaluate the progress that we're making in this pathway on the basis of spiritual fruit or disciplines that we acquire, right? So like going to church and then prayer and reading our Bibles. And oftentimes it's it's talked about in leadership language. So you hear it like, you know, is able to follow, is able to lead himself well or herself well, uh, leads others well, leads leaders well, you know, like, so there's this progress around the bases. Um, and I, I think there's actually a few problems with viewing Christian discipleship in this way, but at least one of them, and I would say it's the primary one, is that all of them tem- tend to start with this idea of repent and believe the gospel. Repent and believe the gospel. So faith in Jesus is a way into Christian life for all of them, which is true. The only way to life with God is a recognition of my sin and throwing myself on the mercies of Christ. The only way to, to access life with God is repent and believe. That's, that part's true. But, okay, listen. The way that Paul is describing discipleship here in Ephesians, and I've made the case, and I very much believe this is true, that Ephesians is a book about Christian discipleship, about how it works, about how it functions. And the way that Paul talks about it here is that, and even in our text this morning, even the verse that I just read, is that repent and believe the gospel should be the primary heading over every single part of our growth Not only is there never a point at which you leave it behind for deeper things, but the means of those deeper things, the means of growth in every way as a believer is to keep repenting and believing the gospel, applying it to our false idols and false worship. Peter O'Brien in his commentary on Ephesians writes this. He says, 
This indwelling is through faith. That is, as they trust Him, He makes His heart their home. He makes their hearts His home. The implication of the Apostles' Prayer then is that the more the Spirit empowers their lives and their faith, the greater will be their transformation into the likeness of Christ. A point that will later... Uh, that will be developed throughout the second half of the letter. So this is exactly right. Uh, O'Brien's exactly right. The Spirit's work creates a gospel belief in us that continues to shape us to look like Jesus. And that's exactly why Paul writes this way. Like, it's exactly why he spends so much time in chapters 1 through 3 talking about what the gospel is before he gets to what our spiritual life looks like that we're going to get to starting next week when he says, therefore, on the basis of all of this gospel indicative, here's what life looks like. This is how discipleship works. In light of this gospel of grace, the more we come to believe it and trust it, the more our lives will look like this. Right? It's exactly why he prays that Christ would dwell in their hearts by faith before he gets to this therefore. In fact, he's telling them before he gets to that in chapter 4, if they actually want any shot at all at growing in the things that he's about to talk about, growing in gentleness and patience, bearing with one another in love, maintaining unity, putting off our old self, putting on the new self, living lives of righteousness and holiness before God, putting away falsehood, speaking truth, forgiving and giving grace to each other, growing in grace in your marriage and in your parenting and as children to your parents, all of the different ways that Christians are instructed to grow, if you want to grow in any of it, you need to comprehend and root yourselves in the gospel of grace. That you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have the strength to what? To comprehend with all the saints the breadth and length and height and depth and to know what? Like, what are we comprehending? What are we coming to understand more if we want to grow? The love of Christ that surpasses all knowledge that you may be filled with the fullness of God. Like, this is why, so, rooted and grounded in love, this is why our definition of disciple-making at GLC is rooting all of life in the good news of Jesus for His glory and the city's good. It's our mission statement. It's our, it's our discipleship definition. It's exactly what Paul is describing. It's exactly what he describes everywhere he writes about discipleship. And this is why our disciple-making pathway at GLC takes the shape that it does, right? Because I'm, you know, I know you, you say, you might, you might hear me and think, Man, Jeremy, you throw a lot of shade on disciple-making pathways. No, I mean, we have one at Gospel Life. Like, we have an intentional focus on disciple-making here. Our, our desire is not, though, to create a pathway for you to, mo- to move up and make progress on the basis of all of your work and maturity. For you to make connections that say, I've done X, I've been fulfilling, you know, this spiritual fruit and this spiritual fruit, and therefore, I'm becoming more spiritually mature, which will always lead to what? Building a dividing wall of hostility, right? Um, But instead of that, what we want is a pathway. And I think this is what Paul's describing, a pathway um, for the gospel. We want to create a pathway for the gospel into our hearts repeatedly, routinely. And so I I encourage you to pick one up in the lobby. But we have have a disciple-making pathway. um, What's the word for that thing? Infographic, right? So so it's, it's basically, it's a, it, it shows you the process by which at Gospel Life Church we view disciple-making working. And at the top end of that, we talk about gospel proclaimed. 
that throughout the week, as we've said before, we're bombarded by voices competing for our greatest love, right? So I've read this before, but I'm going on sabbatical, so this is my last chance in a while to bring this before you. So just humor me, right? So throughout the week, we're bombarded by voices competing for our greatest love. The Word of God recenters our worship on the truth of who God is and what He's done. When the church gathers, then on Sunday morning when we gather as God's people, the Word is read and explained. It's not like... It, it doesn't say Jeremy preaches. It's that the Word is read and explained. It doesn't matter who's doing, who the spokesman is. What matters is that the Word goes out because, we say, the Spirit works through His Word so that the Gospel is believed. So that we can receive the Gospel, so we can believe the Gospel. That's the Spirit's work. That, we might, that Christ might dwell in our hearts through faith. Right? Okay, uh, then, so Gospel gets proclaimed on Sundays. But it doesn't stop there. It's not like... We think, well, as long as you come on Sundays, you know, listen. Gospel echoed, number two. While Sunday morning is primary for discipleship, we're forgetful creatures and require gospel repetition throughout the week. So we gather in smaller contexts, community groups, one-to-one discipleship, men and women's groups, etc., where we remind one another of the gospel and help one another apply it to all of life. Our heart for you is to, midweek, have connection with other believers with whom you are Echoing this gospel of Christ back and forth, reminding one another of what we're, we so often forget, helping one another apply it to all of life in the context of community. Maybe that's a community group, maybe it's men's and, men and women's study, or maybe it's some other group that you're a part of at GLC. It doesn't have to take a specific programmatic shape, but our ho- heart is for you to gather even midweek, to proclaim this gospel to one another. And then gospel extended, number three. The word then shapes us to com- combat and defeat the competing voices throughout the week more effectively. The gospel changes how we spend our money, engage in relationships, and do our work. As we experience the joy of this gospel transforming our lives, our burden grows to share it with others so that they can know this joy as well. And all this is, we believe, reflected in the purpose of Paul's prayer. You know, like, that the gospel would be at work in our hearts and minds, drawing us closer to Christ. And just in case we still don't get it, you know, just in case we still want to... Mm, white knuckle it, hold on to it, pivot back to us being the ones who are accomplishing th- this work on our own. Like, just in case we pridefully still want to hold on to this, and we pridefully want to say we're so much better than other people, Paul ends with this benediction that, like, once again, levels any hope that, that that's a possibility for us. Um, he reminds us where the power is for all this, and it's not in us. Okay? Um, so we've seen, you know, We've seen this posture from Paul. We've seen the person to whom he prays. We've seen the purpose of his prayer. And now we see the power for all of it. Why should we constantly be moved to pray as the people of God? Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than we can ask or think. According to the power at work within us. To him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Who do you want to trust your life to? To entrust your life to? You? Or the one who's able to do far more abundantly than you can ask or think? Who do you want to trust the life of the church to? Me? Us? People? Our own inclinations of how we think things should work? Or the one who is the power at work within us? You know? Could Paul be any more repetitive or thorough or clear that you are not the primary driver of your own discipleship? If you were, you would have a reason to boast. 
You'd give yourself the glory, I promise it. I promise you would. But instead, it's God who receives glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations. See, we like to, to approach our Christian lives, to approach the life of the church, and think, man, discipleship can't work that way. Evangelism can't work that way. I've just got to tweak it a little bit, because that doesn't seem like it would work. So we need to reframe and reshape this so it seems a little less counterintuitive to me. Meanwhile, we serve this God. Do you want to know what he, he loves to do? He loves to work powerfully when it seems like it's impossible. Do you want to know why? Well, when it seems like it's counterintuitive, there's absolutely no question that we couldn't have done this ourselves. Like, he gets the glory. It's evidence of that. Do we trust him is the question. And more than that, do you realize that you can't possibly achieve anything of any value apart from his work in you? You can't. You can't do it. What the gospel tells us about who we are apart from Christ's work is good news that should drive us to our knees because there's one who can do it. Who can. And he came to do it for us. We should apply that kind of throwing ourselves on his mercies to every aspect of our life and ministry. Not just once for salvation, but repeatedly as Christians. And when we do that, do you want to know what happens? Like we're able to be rooted and grounded in a love that enables love for one another. Enables reconciliation. It enables unity under the gospel of grace. It enables a shared mission and vision in the life of the church together. As we join as the people of God to share the gospel, to extend the gospel to even the most skeptical people, right? The way that we pursue this together at Gospel Life Church is through what we call covenant membership. And we're thankful to be adding 10 new covenant members at Gospel Life. This morning we'll have eight. Um, Mark and Cindy Tevin will be added at at a later time. They've come through this as well. But we have eight that we'll be installing into membership this morning. Just real quickly, here's what we believe about membership. Everyone who's a believer in Jesus is a positional member in the universal body of Christ. So if you're a Christian, you're a positional member in the universal body. The vast majority of times that Paul talks about this word church, ecclesia, he's not talking about the universal church, he's talking about the local church. And there's this um, command for us as Christians to be passionately committed to a specific local church where we're using our, our gifts, where we're um, being shepherded, where to, to which we grant authority in our lives to call out sin and all of this. And it's, this is good. And so this morning we, we have new covenant members to add to our family at Gospel Life. I'm going to call them up and um, bring us through the uh, membership covenant together and then we're going to pray for